Welcome to Hymn Talk, the discussion of hymns, music, and singing in the life of the church. I'm Zach DePrima, and with me is Southeastern Baptist PhD candidate Alex <laughs> DePrima. Alex, how are you doing? Doing fine. Uh, looking forward to the day when I'm not a candidate anymore. Alex, from Isaiah 6, verse uh, 1, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his faith, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah continues, he says, And the foundations of the threshold shook at his voice, uh, at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Amen. Alex, I thought this text would be a relevant text to the subject we're going to be discussing today, and that's the topic of majesty and worship. Hmm. Majesty is a is a trait, is a is a aspect of worship that we're we're constantly striving for. One could argue that it's often neglected in our current state, in our current culture. But I wanted you to kick us off and, and tell me, what are we talking about when we're discussing majesty? Like majesty is a characteristic, as an attribute, mm-hmm. you know? uh, a sense of glory, a sense of transcendence, a sort of royal power or might, a sense of beauty. Um, I, I think the word majesty connotes a, a sort of authority as well. Majesty is what um, characterizes someone above us or mm, beyond mm-hmm. us. I think there's, uh, well, certainly in the Bible, royal overtones to the idea of majesty, riches, might, power, glory, transcendence, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think is, is at the heart of what majesty is, at least um, that's what comes to mind right now. Mm. Uh, why do you think majesty is maybe challenging for 21st century Americans to understand and, and appreciate? Because I think we have uh, an impaired sense of the transcendent, hmm. an impaired sense of the true, the good, and the beautiful. Um, I think generally we as 21st century Americans are caught up with little things, hmm. little pleasures, little thrills, little entertainments, uh, everything's bite-sized, everything's quick, everything's immediate, and majesty is something that, that requires, I mean, it's awe in the presence of something, observing something, meditating mm-hmm. on something, beholding mm-hmm. something. Uh, we're just, I think, too distracted by little things, little pleasures, little delights, and majesty is something so much bigger than what we tend to, to chew on, tend to reflect on, tend to give our time to. I don't know. That, yeah. That's something I would say. It's, it's often yeah. said in our age that nothing is sacred, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, there's a prevailing irreverence mm-hmm. in our culture today, relativism in our culture today. I think when you lose a sense of absolutes and universal norms and universal standards, mm-hmm. that has the effect of, of um, lowering our sense of what's beautiful and awesome mm. and majestic. 
Um, this is a small thing, but you asked about 21st century Americans. Americans have never had a monarchy. Yeah. And so the fact is just most countries in the world throughout history have had monarchies before. Right. We've never had one. So I think that might affect, again, if there's royal overtones to the idea of majesty, that could be a factor as well. Yeah, I think we also are, are such an individualistic culture that has little reverence for, for really any sort of institution. Yes. I mean, this this country was found on one of our founding principles was was separation of church and state mm-hmm. for good or bad. That that's a founding principle, and uh, in our day, there's there's not even reverence for the church, and not to even get political, but it, it, to think about our our authorities, mm-hmm. to think about the office of the president. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have in our office Donald Trump now, uh, and whatever you think about Donald Trump, you can at least say. He doesn't bring the dignity to the office that there yeah, was sure. in a George Washington or even a Franklin Delano Roosevelt or even John Kennedy. Well, and, and even even the office itself, you bring up like a George Washington, he deliberately tried to downplay some of the majesty of the office. Hmm. Um, if you read about his personal history and even the titles he chose to go by, he wanted to shrink the gap between whatever individuals occupy in the highest office in the land and the average American. He wanted that gap to be shrunk. And that's, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but if you want to understand the world of the Bible, the world of the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testament, has a much, has much more space for the idea of caste, hmm. mm-hmm. C-A-S-T-E, caste, mm-hmm. like layers and hierarchy hmm. of classes in society. I'm not saying we should recreate that in our society. I'm just saying the idea of the sort of dignity that accords with someone of a certain office or status or class right. above my own class. Right. We don't we don't think in those terms as much. Yeah. We view our political officials as peers largely, even though in terms of the power differential they're not. Yeah. We still view them as peers. The people of the Bible don't think of in, in those terms about their own kings, queens and rulers and authorities. And then when that principle is being applied to God, mm-hmm. We have to get back to that world of the Bible, yeah. where there's this appreciation for the difference of status yes. and position. And even mm. those countries that have exposure to a monarchy, there, there's still just some distance to that concept, given our historical moment. I mean, if you're an American, mm-hmm. your only understanding of a monarchy, your most nearest conception of a monarchy is going to be constitutional monarchy. Mm-hmm. It's going to be something like we see in England, where... For whatever you think about the royals, they don't have much power. They, sure. they don't have much, much much real sovereignty to make decisions. Yes. They serve at the pleasure of parliament or, or, or the government. Yes. We have no concept of a, a, a truly absolute monarchy yes. and an absolute sovereign. Well, and, and, and like I said, I think the idea of majesty brings up the idea of authority and power. Yep. And, and that would be lacking in a constitutional monarchy like they have in England. And, and I would not want to say just the, the sheer opulence that marks the royals is equated with majesty. Majesty has more than that, a certain responsibility in terms of um, wielding power and sovereignty. And the fact is a lot of constitutional monarchs today would not have that same power and sovereignty and authority as monarchs in times past. Mm -hmm. So you would consider majesty, biblically speaking, and I don't have a bunch of texts in my mind, but the concept of majesty involves the idea of God's transcendence yeah, his nobility, his hmm. beauty. O oh Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There's a sense of it being higher, it being elevated. 
it being unstained and untarnished and unimpaired. Glory, beauty, awe, these are the ideas that come to my mind. Hmm. Do you think that, that many churches in our day and age fail to convey the majesty of God in worship? Absolutely. Much hmm. in every way. I think uh, it's not a unique 21st century American problem. I think it's prevalent across the world today. I think that the values that regulate most worship services, so-called worship services today, um, are comfort, uh, entertainment, and encouragement. So, so the goal is to create as comfortable an environment as possible for the average casual, careless, and carefree American. Mm. So the way you'll see that in the way services are marketed, you know, you know, everything's easy, accessible, come on in, grab a cup of coffee, take a seat. We're having a conversation about anxiety. It's all casual. Right. You know, you're gonna be, your kids will be whisked away to the nursery, to the kids' center where everything's casual and convenient and, and great. And there's a focus on production in the service and an entertainment quality and experience mm -hmm. of something exhilarating and thrilling that ultimately hinges on me and how I feel and what no I No silence in the service. No silence, Everything's yeah. on cue. Well, and, and, and everything is centered around you being leaving encouraged hmm. and uplifted. The ultimate goal is for you to feel good about your life, yourself, your situation. And so I think those are ultimately the things driving most organized services, at least in the free church tradition. And, and a, a, an effort of walking away feeling sort of in awe of who God is and how small I am, that's, that's just not high up on the list of, of priorities. Hmm. So I asked you if you think churches lack this quality of majesty of God in their worship, and embedded in that question was that we can do things to convey mm -hmm. God's majesty in worship. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Well, yes. I mean, there's certain things we can say. There's certain things we can give profile to and, and things we can try to um, uh, uh, put at the front, or the, the, the forefront of the service itself. What ideas, um, what practices are prominent in the service itself? Um, yeah, absolutely. There's tons of different things we can do. I can go into some of those things. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, I, I think I think it's one of the reasons why the church tradition that that I find myself in and appreciate so much values what we might call the primacy of preaching, hmm. that the the primacy of hearing from God's word, and that not being a dialogue or a conversation or something like that, but rather, as the scriptures say, let him who speaks speak the oracles of God. First Peter four eleven. Uh, if that is front loaded, hearing from God and being answerable to his word and responsive to his word is the big prevailing idea. Well, we're immediately in God-centered territory. The idea that we are coming before God, it's not just Jesus wanting to give me a blessing today, but we are coming before God into his presence right. to interact with him. If that is prominent, um, I think that goes a long way in introducing a note of transcendence and majesty into the service. Prioritizing prayer, prioritizing singing, prioritizing actual communion with God. I do think injecting some some spots of silence in the church. Mm, mm -hmm. I think all those things bring us to reckon with God in a, in a more serious and meaningful way. Yeah, to think of, of, of the primacy of preaching, for example, I think when it comes to the content that we're putting in front of people, I think one of the ways we sometimes fail in conveying God's majesty is we stay in the realm of, of adjectives 
without descriptions and, and verbs and actually actions of God that are majestic. I sure. struggle with this in preaching. When I, when I see some a glorious truth in Scripture, I want to just say, isn't this glorious, brothers and sisters, yeah, yeah, without sure. actually trying to expound and, and capture the, the, the glory with my words. Yeah, one of the best things I've, I've heard on that or read about that is from John Piper. and He has a book. I'm going to – I always get the title wrong. It's something like seeing beauty and saying it beautifully. Yeah. It's in his Swan series, and he looks, I think, at George Herbert, great poet, and a couple of others. And his point is, it's your job, preacher, to tell us what is glorious, mm. what is mm-hmm. majestic, mm-hmm. characterize these things for us, and use good muscular language to, to, to capture it. And reading Isaiah 6, I mean, we can yeah. see that on display, can't we? Yeah, don't you feel in six short verses sort of transported into the presence of God yeah, and a sense of majesty and transcendence, something more than, you know, grab a cup of coffee and get a blessing from Jesus today. Yes. There's something bigger than that um, that is conveyed in, in that passage and in passages like it. Alex, do you think our, our style and music should seek to bring out the majesty of God? Yes, but uh, it's a bit of a loaded question. So I don't, by saying yes, I mean that we should give thought to how the, the music itself and how the music's arranged can help evoke ideas of majesty. But a couple caveats on that. I recognize a lot of people in the world don't have the ability to access musical instruments or good tunes or whatever. Um, and you can have quite simple, unadorned music programs and still worship God. So the Bible doesn't require that we have a very elaborate music program in order to sing praise to God. Uh, that I, I would also say um, there's a way in which our, our sense of what's majestic um, can revolve around material things, hmm. not around mm-hmm. God himself. So, 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 yes, I mean, does a cathedral put us in a frame of, of transcendence and majesty? Yes. Is it required that we have cathedrals in order to worship God? No. Mm-hmm. And we should not be so driven by a sense of transcendence and beauty and glory that it leads us to be preoccupied with physical and material things. Hmm. That said, I do think those who have the opportunity to give a lot of attention to music should give attention to things like fine and folk culture, high and low culture, and how that should affect the music of the church. Um, I, I, I think there's, there's certain tunes that can be used for one song that evoke a sense of glory and beauty and the tunes can be used for the same words mm, that mm-hmm. totally miss that yeah. so thought should be given out there are instruments i think that lend themselves more to engaging the hearts of people on the themes of the songs themselves thought should be given to that mm. you know, do you more. think there's something to the the multifaceted nature of christ himself the fact that jesus himself is is transcendent but he's also in a very real, quite imminent. He, he's he's yes. close to us, and, well, and our music should reflect that as well. Yes, and and to to kind of the second part of your question, should should every tune convey the majesty of God? I would say probably no. Yeah, be, because um, the majesty of God, narrowly speaking, is not the theme of every song. Yes. So, so there are lots of songs we sing where that's just not the, the loudest note we're ringing. Right. There could be something majestic about the imminence of Christ at the same time. There's something kingly about the Lord's humiliation mm-hmm. and his death and resurrection. 
but but yes, I mean, it's, some songs are are particularly trying to to be about praise to God and majesty, glory, worth are are all there. And then other songs are songs of lament, songs that focus on the nearness of Jesus in His humanity, and and the music should accord with those themes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, just to borrow like a literary example, I think of the character from Lord of the Rings, Aragorn. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a guy who who's has the transcendence of the King of Gondor mm-hmm. to all those Lord of the Rings nerds that know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but he's also a, a Dunedain ranger. I mean, he's also he's also you know a, a ranger and a, and a warrior of sorts, yes. and and a, a quite a, a an intimate character as well. He kind of has both those aspects, and I see both of those are traits of the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ is the lamb who is slain, who is worthy to receive all honor and praise. Yes. And he's also uh, the shepherd of our souls who, who washes the disciples' feet. He's a king who condescends to dine at the table with tax collectors and sinners. Yes. And so, that, yeah, there's, there's nobody like him. There's no king like him. There's no priest like him, no prophet like him. And so there, there is something altogether unique that's being conveyed in Christian music, Christian singing. We're not just borrowing themes from other earthly courts of thought. Right. There's something altogether unique about the God-Man Jesus. And because of that, I would say there should be diversity reflected in our in our music. But I would say, at the very least, majesty better be reflected. Yeah. Well, yeah. the 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 sentiments you're going for, the themes and and feelings you're going for, are as wide as God Himself, as hmm. wide as Christ Himself. And so let's let's go across the spectrum of of all that that can be appropriately sung about God. Mm. Amen. Well, Alex, I want to move to our hymn of the week, and our hymn of this week is relevant to the text that we read earlier, and that's "Holy, Holy, Holy" by Reginald Heber. Reginald Heber he lived from 1783 to 1826, and he was a rather prolific hymn writer. Uh, he wrote many hymns that were probably more popular in previous generations. One of his tunes, in addition to Holy, 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 that is very popular is the Christmas song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. But Heber, he was educated at Oxford, and his father uh, was actually also a minister. And uh, he became vicar of a parish church in Hodnet, uh, which is in uh, Shropshire, which I believe I'm pronouncing that right. Most certainly not, mm-hmm. but uh, that's the area of England he was in, and he went into that role of vicar of that church in 1807 when he was a young man, served there for, I believe, about 16 years, and then went to be actually bishop of Calcutta, India hmm. for three years until his death. So he was one of, the, one of the pioneering missionaries in the Church of England. Now, most of his hymns were written during the Hodnet period of his life, and during his life, he had he had little success in publishing hymns. Most were published a, a year or two after his death, and then for nearly 200 years since, they've been sung in the Church of Christ. But in Reginald's day, hymn singing and hymn writing was not widely accepted in the Church of England. Now, it would have been in low church circles, Heber himself was a high churchman, and 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 hymn singing and hymn writing was was not as accepted and commonplace in high church settings. You would have had more historical creedal arrangements. You would have more psalms. Uh, Alex, I was wondering if you could just for a moment explain the difference between high church and low church. Uh, well, it depends on who you ask, I suppose. The high church um, uh, groups, denominations, whatever you want to call them, would. Um, Prioritize um, ceremony, sacramentalism usually, um, 
things like ornate buildings, a higher sense of the clerical office and its functions, its responsibilities, even its power. Um, low church traditions usually have much more simple, unadorned services. There is a, um, a, a less of a divide between clergy and laymen, to use older terms. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly no sense of sacramental power in the ordinances. Um, usually less appreciation for high culture, um, you know, priestly clothes for for the, the the leaders of the church and things like that, and ornate music and all of that. It's it's a very broad discussion. And yeah. Hard to define. But a distinct divide, at least within the Church of England. Sure. And uh, Heber, as I said, he was a high churchman, but he loved men like John Newton. And John Newton would have considered himself Mm. a a low churchman, and uh, he was a big fan. Heber was a big fan of Newton's Olney's Hymns, uh, which was a hymn book he he published with William Cowper. Mm. And he was also inspired by the impact of hymns in dissenter circles, so Methodists and, and people in the evangelical awakenings. But he was never quite able to gain momentum in any sort of hymn movement in the Church of England. In fact, he was formally denied publishing of hymns uh, to be propagated widely in the Church of England within his lifetime. But thankfully, after his death, his hymns did begin to be published widely. And post-1850, they grew to wide prominence, so about a generation after his death. Now, big part of Heber's life, he was, had a deep passion for missions. He was a broad supporter of missionary societies, including the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, church missionary, the Church Missionary Society, and the British and Foreign, Foreign Bible Society. That latter one was a society that would uh, uh, get Bibles to people hmm. in England and abroad. Now, something I discover, discovered that I found very interesting in just my brief research on, on Heber is he, has a, he had a very popular hymn in the 19th century called Greenland's Icy Mountains. And this was a missionary hymn. And, and, and this uh, uh, anecdote it reflects an intersection between sharp doctrine and the rising liberalism of the 20th century in the Church of England. Uh, Greenland's Icy Mountains, was, it, again, it was a powerful missionary hymn. The first verse says, From Greenland's icy mountains, from India's coral strand, where Africa's bright fountains roll down their golden sand, from many an ancient river, from many a palmy plain, they call us to deliver their land from error's chain. The hymn was a, was by far his actually his most popular hymn in the 19th century, way more popular than Hark the Herald or, or Holy, Holy, Holy. Hmm. But sadly, if you look at how many hymnals this hymn, Greenland's Icy Mountains, was published in, the number is extraordinarily high in the 1830s and 1850s, and then it declines, slowly declines over the next hundred years. So by the point of 1982, it was struck from the Episcopal hymnal, hmm. and not for an unknown reason. Many found the hymn to be patronizing and insensitive to other beliefs, hmm. with references to wow. the vileness of men and the need for the gospel to go to the heathen and those who worship wood and stone. It was just seen as, as culturally insensitive. Hmm. So they struck it from the hymnal, which, Alex, just really, to me, breaks my heart. Yeah, and it, it, it reveals just the, the vanilla, compromising, and, and liberal tendencies of the Church of England, especially in the later 20th century. Yeah, yeah. certainly yeah. the Episcopal wing of the Church of England. But we're here to discuss the what is today Hebrews' most popular hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. And this hymn uh, uh, gathers as its biblical source Isaiah 6, which is an account of Isaiah's vision of the Lord and his subsequent call to ministry. 
Simply put, that this song is an exaltation of God's triune, or, or the triune God's holiness. God is described as perfect in power and, and merciful and mighty. And each of the verses describe different people or, or things that exude praise to God. So the first verse is an expression of our own pra- uh, uh, praise to God, God's people. Uh, I believe he says, early in the morning, our song shall rise to thee. To thee. The second verse describes the heavenly bodies and the angels casting their crowns and bowing down to God. It says, cherubim and seraphim, that they're falling down before thee. The third verse, which is probably my favorite verse, it expounds the the sinfulness of men in reference to God's glory. So though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. And then the last verse describes all of God's works to be declaring praise to him. And Alex, I think this is something we often forget. The heavens declare the glory of God and, and the sky above his handiwork. The, the, the mountains, the rivers, the, the, the hills, they scream out glory to God. His, his works of providence as well, you know, not just creation, but what, what God has wrought throughout the world, throughout history, throughout time. Yeah. So, so all of these things, they're subject to God, but they also adore him and, and they proclaim his greatness. So, Alex, what are your thoughts about this hymn? I love it. I think um, we need more hymns like it. I think it's a great way to start a worship service, ascribing holiness to God and majesty to God and um, power to God. Uh, I think it puts us in our place. It puts him in his place. And what's what's sweet about the song is that there's all this this sense of the the transcendence of God and the greatness of God. But it's, it's, it, it also highlights our relation to God and his greatness, that though God is so great, though we can't see uh, his glory, um, we nonetheless enter into relationship with him and can hmm. communicate with him. And um, so I love it. I think it's a fantastic song. And I think, um, I, I think if the goals of the worship service are God-centeredness and a sense of transcendence and um, being in the presence of God, Hard to find a better song mm-hmm. to, to, to bring out those themes. Something I'm doing as my work as a pastoral assistant for Emmanuel Church is is cataloging our songbook into the different topics discussed in hymns. And one of my mentors, uh, Michael Haken, often, often remarks, you never hear a sermon series about the Trinity. Yeah, sure. We want our hymns to reflect the glorious trinity. Mm-hmm. For you song leaders out there, the, the tune to this song is actually called Nicaea. And mm. it was written by John Bacchus Dykes in, in 1861. I assume with that title Nicaea, he, he wrote it uh, with intent for these words, holy, holy, holy. The, the lyrics would have been written by Heber about... Uh, 40 years before the the tune was, Hmm. the tune that we commonly know. And I bring up that tune just to warn uh, anybody from Indelible Grace or anybody (laughs) from uh, uh, that's a budding songwriter, if you dare write a different tune (laughs) to the hymn Holy, 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 you'll have to answer to me. And you'll have to answer to many of the people of God because, look, there are just some things that are just too sacred. Yes. Don't mess with this tune, please. Yeah, this tune can't be messed with. And the great thing, this tune can be sung in both high church and low church settings. It can be done in a variety of different arrangements. But the, the tune itself, I think, is timeless. I think we'll be singing it 100, 200, 500 years from now.
Yes. When I play this song, I usually finger pick it on the acoustic guitar. Uh, I think that's better than a more uh, a, a louder arrangement. Uh, I usually just do it myself and a pad. And I would encourage any song leaders, uh, I would strongly encourage to, to bring out the effect of the third verse, hmm. which, which sharply places in contrast our own sinfulness and laying us before a holy God. I would strongly encourage you to sing that verse a cappella. If you don't sing the whole hymn a cappella, that's also a great option. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least sing that verse. God's people normally respond to that, and they're normally able to really uh, ponder and consider those words. Alex, with that, we're out of time. Thank you for your time. Happy to be here. <laughs>